A word of the Lord comes from John 14, verses 1 through 11. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Hey, good morning. Peace be with you. It's great to see you and welcome to Trinity Community Church, especially if this is your first time here. We're really glad you're with us. This is the second week that we are in this new series called Questioning Christianity, which is a little bit of uh, a new thing for us. It's a little different than what we normally do. We normally just take one passage or one book of Scripture and just work through it uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Um, But what we're doing in this series is trying to create a place for the questions both in our own community and then in our broader community and in our city. And so there's a few reasons why we're doing this series. First of all, we want to create a safe place where we can talk about things like religion without arguing. There aren't many of those places left in our society. We also want to respond to the actual questions of our community. As Christians, we don't want to just assume that we know what our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends outside the church are asking, we want to actually ask them what their questions are. And so on our website, we have a place where you can ask questions and those will come to me and the other leaders of the church. And those questions have helped to shape this series from start to finish. And third, we're also doing this series as a way of acknowledging and responding to the doubts within our own hearts. And so last week we saw this man in, in Mark 9 who approached Jesus for the healing of his son. And, and when Jesus Uh, asked him about his faith. He said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus doesn't rebuke that. He actually counts that as sufficient faith. And so that's part of the posture that we're trying to take in this series, that even having doubts as Christians is not only a normal thing, it's actually a good thing. And it's a good thing because Christianity is not necessarily an, an airtight case. You can't prove Christianity. You can't prove the existence of God. And so there's always going to be room for doubts within our own faith. In the same way as we talked about last week, the problem of proof, proof it, it goes both ways. You also cannot prove that God doesn't exist. And so if you can't prove that God exists, you can't prove that he doesn't exist. Everybody, whether you're religious or non-religious, you're making a leap of faith. You're basing your life on something you can't see and can't prove, regardless of whether you're spiritual or religious or not. And so this week, the, uh, the plan was to do something along the lines of identity and meaning, you know, what am I here for, something like that. 
But the question that we've received more than anything else through the website has been this, how can Christianity claim to be the one true religion? This has been the question that we've gotten more than any other. We've gotten some other forms of the same questions, like aren't all religions teaching the same thing? Aren't they all, basically, don't they each just have part of the truth? Uh, something like, isn't it narrow-minded to believe that just there's just one way to God and salvation? Doesn't religion, believing there's only one right religion, doesn't that lead to violence and war? And so, th- so these are some of the questions that exist within our own church, within our own community. And what we're going to do is look at the words of Jesus, just like we did last week. This week, we're looking at John 14, where Jesus announces that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And this is a, a, a question that we want to take seriously. It's a thing that we'll see over and over in our community, especially in a, in a town that's highly educated, that's very uh, progressive and secular in its mindset. There's this understanding or this belief that all religions are essentially teaching the same thing or that they all have part of some greater truth. And so it's therefore arrogant to say that my one religion is correct. And it makes sense. If you look out across the world and you see at least a half dozen dozen major world religions that have hundreds of millions of followers, how can we as Christians say that they are all wrong, they are all going to be judged by God, but we are right? Can we, can we say that? Can we say that with sincerity? Is that what the scriptures teach? And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And we're also going to see another person, just like the, the father last week, uh, who said, I believe, but help my un- unbelief. We're going to see another incredible posture of faith that's actually not so strong. Uh, but this time, it's not somebody who's just approaching Jesus. It's actually one of Jesus's closest followers, Thomas. When you hear of Thomas, the disciple, what's the adjective that comes into your mind? Doubting Thomas? Poor Thomas. Man, St. Thomas. He was one of the 12 disciples, one of Jesus' closest followers, with him every day for three years, became one of the founding apostles of the church, helped establish the church in Jerusalem, and then on to the ends of the earth. He was eventually martyred for his faith, one of the most influential Christians in the history of Christianity, and we just call him Doubting Thomas. And so we're going to see the nature of Thomas's doubts and how Jesus responds to those this morning as well. And the big question throughout this series is, as, we're, as we've said, you cannot prove God, you cannot disprove God. What we need to do then is evaluate the claims of Christianity, evaluate the claims of major world religions, evaluate the claims of a secular non-religious worldview, and says not only which is true, but also which is good, which, which produces a life of happiness and, and peace, which produces a world of, of meaning and, and forgiveness and love and peace across the world. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, I think we can look at those three words, way, truth, and life, in in response to three major claims that gets made by our culture. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Jesus' three claims, and we're going to look at three claims from our culture. So first is that Jesus is the way. And the, the claim that I, that I think is so common among us, it's, it's maybe not as common as the ones that we'll look at after this, but you've probably heard some version of all religions teach the same thing. I know I've heard some form of this when I was at Mizzou as an undergrad, when I've been in ministry over the years. This understanding that all religions are essentially teaching the same thing, so how can you pick one over any of the others? Or how can one be right and yet the others be wrong? Now, this is an incredibly Western way of thinking. Most of the people who actually believe in major world religions don't think that their religions are all exactly the same, right? 
It's actually a pretty self-defeating statement because the claims of the world religions are all at conflict with one another. They can't possibly all teach the same thing, and you can't possibly say that doctrine doesn't matter when clearly to all the major world religions, doctrine matters a lot. And so Muslims and Jews don't believe that Jesus is equal with God. Buddhism doesn't even believe in a personal God at all. Christians don't believe that being a good person and following the rules will get you to eternal life. And so every time you compare the religions with one another, they're in conflict. They're not teaching the same thing. It's actually very offensive to about 99% of the world to suggest that all the world religions are teaching the same thing. And in fact, if, if the claim is that it's arrogant to believe one of the world religions above the others, we might even say that it's just as arrogant, if not more arrogant, to say that all the world religions are teaching the same thing. It's a way of sort of putting yourself outside of the other religions and looking down on them from this elevated position and saying, I actually know what you believe better than you, and you're wrong, all of you are wrong, and yet I'm right. It's actually a far more elevated and arrogant position than any of the actual religions take themselves. I know one of the things that I struggle with in our own culture, in a very kind of secular culture where being a Christian has become an increasingly difficult thing, being a Christian minister is not the, the respected position that it was many years ago. And so I feel some of these claims, and I think that all of us want to feel like our own viewpoint is the dominant mainstream viewpoint. Certainly in Colombia, the secular worldview, I would say, is the dominant mainstream viewpoint. But if you looked across the world, and certainly if you looked across all of the history of the world, a secular non-religious worldview is about as fringe of a belief system as exists. You're actually almost like an extremist for believing there is no God, there is no organized religion. And and if you're trying to, to eliminate organized religion, you're really more of a fringe extremist in the larger scheme than somebody in the mainstream view. And so as I said, the step for us is to evaluate the claims of of the other world religions, evaluate the claims of secularism, and then for us to go back to Jesus' original words. Not only what the church has taught throughout history, which is important, but to go back to Jesus' original words as they were recorded by his followers and ask, what what did he teach? One of the challenges I feel, and you may feel when you're either sharing your faith with somebody or talking to somebody about Christianity, it's hard to feel like you're, you're representing all of Christianity at once, right? Like, how can we say this is what Christianity teaches definitively? But when we go to Jesus' words, we can see with, with authority and with, with certainty what he taught and what Christians are to follow and do. And so throughout this series, there are questions that we've received that are really, really hard questions. And some of the questions are really, really hard because we don't really know the answer. There's not total certainty on them. So like the exact timing of the end of the world, despite what maybe some religious groups would tell you, we don't really know exactly when Jesus is coming back, when the world is going to end. We don't know how many dinosaurs were on the ark, despite what some people might tell you they've discovered. There are questions that are difficult because we don't have a super clear answer. And then there are questions that are difficult because the answer we have is so certain. Because Jesus was so clear on a few points, and that's what makes these questions so difficult. They're not difficult because we can't figure out the answer. They're difficult because the answer is difficult in themselves, and they're unpopular. And so Jesus' claim, I am the way. In verse 1, he says, you believe in me, or you believe in God, believe also in me. 
My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And I love that Jesus describes salvation in terms of, of a feast and of a, of a house and of a, a family gathering together around the table. That's, that's the image that Jesus is giving his followers of salvation. And it's almost too much for his disciples to take in. And you get a couple of responses. First from Thomas, I think it's verse 5, when he says, Lord, we don't know. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And this is one of the reasons why we call him Doubting Thomas is because he, he expresses this doubt. And I think it's Philip that he, he responds almost more in a, in a demanding way. But Thomas's doubt, I think we can resonate with. I think we can resonate with the fact that we have, we have major questions about our own faith. We have major doubts at moments in our life. And Jesus' response to Thomas, it, it, it could not be more clear. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. You may have heard before that this is one of Jesus' seven I am statements. These statements where he is, he is identifying himself as one with the Father. That word I am, if you remember back when God revealed himself to Moses and Moses asked his name and he says, I am who I am. And that's where they got the word Yahweh. And in our scriptures in the Old Testament, that's Lord in all caps. And Jesus is saying, I am. And as soon as they heard those words, they knew that this was an incredible claim that Jesus was making. And he makes it over and over, especially in the Gospel of John. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in case it's unclear, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. It's impossible to read the New Testament and not see that Jesus considered himself equal with the Father. It's impossible to say, well, my Christianity doesn't teach that it's the only way. My Christianity allows for all sorts of faith and all sorts of other beliefs and all sorts of other saviors. If that's your Christianity, that's not Jesus' Christianity. That's not the Christianity of the New Testament. In Acts 4.12, when the early disciples are put on trial for their faith, it's Peter that says salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Paul taught the same thing, 1 Timothy 2, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself for a ransom for all people. And so it's clear when Jesus says, I am the way, he's not saying I am a way, I'm one of the ways. He's not even saying, I'm the best way, like you've got all these options, but I'm the best one. You know, it's not like when the Hyperloop comes, you've seen the Hyperloop, it was on campus this week, eight minutes to St. Louis, eight minutes to Kansas City, an enclosed tube with magnets and a super train inside of it, Tesla-inspired or whatever. It's not like Jesus is saying, I'm the Hyperloop and you all are sitting around in your boring cars. He's not like, I'm the best way, I'm one of the ways. Why would you consider the other ways? He's saying, I am the way, capital T capital W. And so Jesus is the way. And the second thing he says is that he is the truth. And the, the claim that I think of in terms of the question of truth is one I've heard even more than the first claim, and that's that each religion has part of the truth. And so maybe they're not teaching all the same things if somebody recognizes that that is inherently contradictory. We might hear, and you might hear this at the the religion department in most universities, that all 
religions have an element of truth in them. And so pick and choose from the world religions. What do you like? What do you not like? What do you think fits? What doesn't fit? And then put together your own belief system out of these different world religions. I know when I was in college, I heard this old illustration of, of the elephant and the, the blind men. Have you heard this? And so there's uh, these blind men that are led into a room and they're asked to describe the animal that's inside. And so it's not a perfect illustration. Apparently, they've never seen an elephant before. One of them says, you know, it's, it's big and it's thick and it's round because he's got a hold of the leg. And the other one says, no, it's, it's really thin and it keeps flapping around and he's got a hold of the tail. And the other one says, it's really high and it's flat and dry and flappy because he's got a hold of the ear. And so as the illustration goes, each of the major world religions is, is only able to see their own part of the elephant. They're each got a hold of one bit of it because they can't see the whole because they're blind. In the same way, all of us who believe in, in one way of salvation, we're only seeing it from our limited angle. Whereas if you could zoom back, you could see that there is far more to the elephant than meets the eye. Now, of course, the problem with that, hopefully you see it already, the, the problem with this illustration is that the, the narrator, as it were, is the only one who's not blind. All the other people in this illustration are blind, except this narrator who's like looking down from above who can see everything perfectly clearly. And so the claim that each religion has part of the truth, it's, it's far more exclusive, far more arrogant than any of the claims to see from one religion's worldview. Tim Keller writes in The Reason for God, how could you possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself have the superior comprehensive knowledge of spiritual reality you just claimed none of the world religions have? And so if you're saying that each of the religions has a little bit of the truth, you're also saying, I can see all of the religions as they are. I can actually see everything perfectly clear. And it's just as much of an exclusive claim as anything else. And so it's into this world, into this, into this worldview that Jesus says, I am the truth. Not I am a truth. I'm not one of the truths. I'm not partial truth. He says, I am am who I am. I am the truth. And this question of salvation, it's, it's difficult not because it's unclear, but because it is so clear. It's difficult because if it, if it is true and if Jesus is right because he is crystal clear, that means we have to adjust our lives accordingly. We have to see the world in a different way. C.S. Lewis, the the author in the past century, he taught at Oxford University at a time where it had become the most secular, non-religious university in the world. And he was writing and he said, there are really only three possibilities because Jesus claims to be the Son of God. Since Jesus was so clear in putting himself as one with the Father and calling himself the only way of salvation, only three things are possible. First of all, he's a liar. So he was intentionally trying to mislead people to get followers Second, he could be a lunatic. He genuinely thought he was divine, but he was delusional. Or third, he's actually right and he's the Lord. Now, he can only be one of these three things. He can only be a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Remember Acts 4, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given to mankind by which we must be saved. Last week, I shared on a personal level why, why I believe, why I'm a Christian. And I do believe there's an incredible amount of evidence for Christianity, far more so than any other religion has. And so it's satisfying to my mind, but it also, 
It also is satisfying to my, my heart in a way that nothing else is. It also describes my deepest longings. It makes, it makes sense of them. It makes sense of my, my struggling, stumbling faith. And I don't want to be the center of my religion. I don't want a religion where my God responds to me and, and, and does what I tell him to do. I don't want a God that has to, to stoop down and fix everything as soon as I tell him what to do. I don't want to be the center of my own prayers where God is answering everything I say because then I'm the God of that prayer. If I'm the God of a religion, that's not a very good religion. I can acknowledge that. You know, it's hard to submit to truth outside of us. Submission is probably the most hated word in our culture. And it's understandable because humans have done so much to, to hurt and abuse one another that we don't want to submit to anything or anyone. And yet at the same time, the very person that says, I don't want to submit to anything, goes to class and takes notes from their professor. They go to their job and they try to please their boss. They try to get in the right social in crowd and get the approval of their peers. The one who doesn't want to submit to anything is already submitting all day long. And so for me, I'd rather submit to a truth and to a way that's bigger than myself. I love the, the prayer of the Psalms, lead me to the rock that is higher than me. There has to be something bigger and greater, deeper and truer than what I can see. And so that's the question of truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. And the third thing he says is that I am the life. And the question of life, I think there are a couple claims here that we can look at. And the first is that religion is a barrier to world peace. The religion, if, if you really believe that your way is the way, that it's the only right way, won't that make you feel superior to all other people? Won't that make you look down on other people? Won't you look at other people as less pure and less intelligent and less devoted? And then if you see them that way, you begin to, to treat them as if they're less than human. And once you dehumanize somebody, you can do all sorts of awful things toward them. Isn't that what religion does? And so as Christians, we can look at that claim and actually acknowledge that's generally true. That is generally what happens in religion. Religion gives people a, a sense of an elevated self. It, it makes them insiders and everything else, everyone else is an outsider. And yet at the same time, when we look at Christianity, that's completely at odds with the heart of Jesus' message. At the heart of Christianity is a message of grace, that it's not that we have earned our way to salvation, not that we have followed all the rules and found ourselves chosen worthy. No, it's the exact opposite, that we have done nothing to earn our salvation. We, like everybody else, have, have broken God's law time and time again. We have not lived perfectly. And yet when God holds forth salvation to us, we have confessed our sins. We have confessed there is nothing we can do to make ourselves right with him. And we have believed in Jesus as the only way. And that's the only reason that we are believers. And so there's no possible way that we can have a superiority complex because we were the least of all people and yet God had mercy on us. And so while it can certainly be that religion elevates people, Christianity cannot do that at all. Anybody who has a superiority complex within Christianity is living about as far away from Christ as you possibly can. 
Now there's another claim that I want to look at that's very similar to it, and that's that it's wrong to, to share your faith. It's wrong to evangelize for your religion. Evangelism, it's, it's one of the most difficult parts of Christianity, sharing our faith with somebody. It's been said it's the one thing that, that we don't want to do and that the person across from us doesn't want to hear. Sharing our faith with somebody is incredibly difficult. And often in our culture, we'll hear that there are many good and smart people all over the world, so why would we try to convert them to our own way of thinking? Why would we try to, why would we try to convert people when they already believe they might even be happy, they might even be good people, why would we try to convert them? And a lot of this is based on this inherent contradiction that all claims to have found the right way are arrogant and wrong, and yet that in itself is claiming to have found the right way. So saying not to share your faith, not to evangelize, not to try to get other people to agree with you, that's actually a way of trying to get somebody to agree with you. That's doing the same thing that it's rejecting. It's trying to evangelize you into not sharing your faith and to think and act exactly like the other person. It's just as narrow-minded to say that all religions are right and try to convince people of that as to say that one religion is right and try to convince people of it. And the thing I'm sure you've picked up in our culture is that everybody everywhere is already an evangelist for what they love, for what they care about. If you've ever met anybody that does CrossFit or multi-level marketing, you know that everybody is evangelizing all the time. If it was up to me, you guys would all be super into cycling. You'd love the Chiefs. You'd triple your gluten intake. You'd do life exactly as I do life. And I want to share the things that I love with people because that's innate to who I am, and that's true for all of us. Jesus says, I am the life. Later in this passage, John 14, this, this passage comes on Holy Thursday. It's the night before Good Friday. Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room, and he's, he's teaching them. It's his, his sort of final extended bit of teaching that he does before going to the cross. And it's John 14, 19. He says, before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will recognize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. It's a profound statement about the life that we have in Christ. He's speaking of his own death and resurrection when he says, In a little bit, you won't see me in a longer, uh, in, any longer, but then again, you will see me. And when you see me, you will be with me, you will be in with me, you will be in me as I am in the Father. What he's saying is that when he is resurrected from the dead, that all who believe in him are then joined to him in salvation. And as we're joined to him and we're one with him, then we are joined to the Father as well. It says, because I live, you will also live. You are in me and I am in you. To be one with Jesus is to be one with eternal life, life everlasting, the life that we've always wanted, the life that we're trying to create for ourselves here on earth, the life that feels so elusive apart from him because it is. To be one with Jesus is to find the life. Now the thing is we can't find Jesus as life until we've chosen him as our way and submitted to his truth. You can't get Jesus' as life without getting Jesus as the way and the truth first. You can't jump directly to Jesus' as life without the way and the truth. 
Now, one of the questions we've received that is one of the most difficult questions, it's one of the most difficult parts of Christianity for me, it's that what about those who have never heard of Jesus? What about those who live in a faraway place, those who lived in another time period where Christianity had not reached them yet? What do we do with these millions of people who have never heard the name of Jesus? Now, we have a few passages of Scripture to go on, and there is some disagreement within the Christian community, but from the words of Scripture, from everything we can tell, it seems from the New Testament that many will die apart from ever hearing Christ, and they'll be judged accordingly. Romans 1 and 2, it says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, they've been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then in chapter 2, verse 12, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin apart from the law will be judged, or all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Now, this is an incredibly difficult word. This is, a, this is a tragedy, to be sure, that so many people could die apart from hearing the name of Jesus. It doesn't make sense in our minds. I admit that it doesn't fit with what I want from Christianity. It's not the way I would organize things. It doesn't feel fair to me. And yet, if anything, it's a, it's a call to action for the church. If it's true that creation and natural life are enough to convict us of sin, but not enough to lead us to salvation, then we of all people should be, we should be the most evangelistic. We should be the quickest to go and tell our neighbors, to make sure that our, our coworkers have a clear understanding of what we believe in Christianity. We should be the first to try to take the gospel to the ends of the earth so that nobody perishes without having an opportunity to respond to Christ. It's not up to us to, to define the doctrines of Christianity. It's not up to us to try to make it as palatable for people as possible. It's up to us to, to spread the news, to spread the good news of Christianity, to give people that opportunity to respond to the grace of God that we've experienced, to the eternal life that we've found by choosing Christ as the only way, as the only truth. Because of what we found and what we believe, we can take this to the ends of the earth so that nobody would perish apart from hearing Christ's words. And so throughout this series, as we've evaluated claims of other world faiths, of, of a secular viewpoint, we're asking which, which one is good? Which one produces the best good for the world? What is it that Christianity contributes to the world? What will most lead to the healing and transformation of our communities? And it's impossible to miss when we look at Christianity, we see the best possible resources for the world. We see in Christ the resources for sacrificial service, for humility, for giving our own lives in service to others, to peacemaking. At the heart of Christianity is the author of our faith, Jesus Christ, who taught to turn the other cheek when you're struck to go the other mile for your enemies, to forgive 70 times 7. 
what Jesus taught and what he embodied and when he went to the cross and the example that he left for us, it shows that you cannot be a Christian and have a superiority complex whatsoever. To be a Christian, to be united to this Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life is to give yourself for others. And I love that our faith is not so much a religion as it is a person. He doesn't say Christianity is the way. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. It's in the person of Jesus that we find the way. The person of Jesus himself is the truth. Our truth is a living person reigning from heaven even now. And so following Christianity, it'll make the world a better place. It'll make it a more peaceful, a more generous, a more giving, a more loving, more forgiving place. Now, as we wrap up, I think about Thomas. He three years of walking with Jesus, being with him night and day. They traveled together. They stayed along the road in all these places. He's seen Jesus do incredible miracles. He's seen him teach And even after all this, he still has doubts. He still doesn't understand. And what's powerful at the end of the Gospel of John, after Jesus' death, all the disciples have gathered together in John 20, and they're they're in a room trying to figure out what to do next. And you remember Jesus enters the room, and he stands among them, and he says, Peace be with you. But it's actually not all the disciples. Thomas is not there. It says in the text that Thomas was not with them in that moment. And so Jesus ate with them. He ate this, you know, fish sandwich with them, apparently. And he spoke with them and encouraged them. And then he left them. And so all the disciples, they rush and they find Thomas and they tell him that Jesus is alive. Now I think about Thomas. Think about what it would have been like to spend three years with somebody, to have your life turned upside down by then. And then to watch them die this, this gruesome death. To believe with all of your heart that this man is the savior of the world, the chosen one, the one that Israel had been waiting for for thousands of years, and then to watch him crucified and breathe his last on the cross. To watch him be, be buried in that tomb. Can you think about the next day and the next couple days, how, how your heart would feel? the disappointment, the the utter agony. And while all the other disciples seem to continue to hang around and try to put the pieces together, is he coming back or not? Thomas, it seems like he just went back to work. He's so discouraged, so hopeless, so full of doubt. He can't see a way that this could be good. And so it seems in that moment he's given up. When the disciples reach him, And they tell him he's alive. He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, as John 20 goes on, it says that Jesus appears again to the disciples, but this time Thomas is with them. And I love that the second time around, he clearly has a little bit of faith that he'll show back up with the disciples. He'll give it one last chance, even if he believes like 1%. But again, Jesus appears and he says, peace be with you. And he speaks directly to Thomas. All the other disciples he's seen before, so he speaks directly to Thomas. He says, Thomas, put your finger here. 
See my hands. Reach out your hands and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus, with incredible patience, he understands the doubts of dear Thomas. He says, come, see my hands, see my side, touch for yourself. And he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And it's not that all of us need to have this physical Jesus in front of us to believe. Jesus says, you're more blessed if you don't see that and believe. But for Thomas, he's willing to show him. When you get from the demands that Thomas makes to see his hands and his side, that, that the crucifixion was so visual for him, he must have been right there at the end of it with Jesus. And it's at the end of John 20, some of the last verses in the entire book, when Thomas touches Jesus, he cries out, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Throughout John, we've reached this point in in 20 chapters of John, and there hasn't been from the disciples a really clear, powerful statement that Jesus is God. And in the closing verse of the book of John, it's Thomas, not Peter, not one of the better, more faithful disciples. It's Thomas who gets the last word, crying out, my Lord and my God. And so for us who who struggle to believe, who struggle with the hard doctrines of the faith, who are still trying to put it all together and trying to live a faithful life. We can look to Christ, our our crucified and our risen Lord. And no doubt remains, we can cry out, my Lord and my God. Let's pray.